Getting internet access from low-Earth orbit satellites has great promise for addressing the digital divide, supporting disaster response, and creating new opportunities for communication. If you're curious about how these systems work as well as the technological and policy implications, download the free white paper, Perspectives on Low-Earth Orbit Satellite Systems for Internet Access by the Internet Society. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. Welcome to Heavy Strategy, where the question... The questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers. Today, Greg and I are going to talk about what enterprise architecture is and why you need it. Or maybe you think you don't, but we're going to talk about why you might want to consider it. Um, Can I, and I'll kick it off. I, I yes. want to kick this off first by getting a definition from you because this is your conversation. I have a fairly, let's just say I have a fairly negative attitude towards enterprise architecture, having been a victim of it at different organizations. But then I think it's also a definition. So for people who aren't familiar with enterprise architecture and the sort of systems, what is enterprise architecture? Well, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a couple of definitions and you can pick one. Uh, Gartner, our friends over at Gartner say that enterprise architecture is a discipline for proactively and holistically leading enterprise responses to disruptive forces by identifying and analyzing the execution of change towards desired business visions and outcomes. That work for you, Greg? I think that what I just heard was bollocks. Exactly. And I would agree <laughs> to, with you. To be, um, to, be, to be fair, that's just rubbish. I, I, I completely is, agree. It's, I mean, it's, that is it's a technically, buzzword soup. Yeah, it's like talking to a professor who's, you know, talking about something from the point, but it's not at all educational or informational. It's some all-encompassing, it sounds like it was generated by a, by a JavaScript from a bunch of word salad. Let, let, but got here, here, is the, here is the, yes, I do. I have yeah. the Namurdi's definition for enterprise architecture. A plan for deploying and connecting stuff to make the business work right. That'll do. <laughs> I think it'll do. Yes. <laughs> that is a much better start, I think, than the word salad that you spat out before. Um, yes. So I would I would like to reiterate that one again. A hmm. plan for deploying and connecting stuff to make the business work right. Because when you put it that way, hmm. you can see immediately why you need one because you can't deploy and connect stuff without a plan. And you can't be sure that the business is going to work right without a plan. So therefore, there's that enterprise. Therefore, you need that enterprise architecture. Then again, the fact, the idea of needing an enterprise architecture is kind of up for grabs a bit. So mm -hmm. maybe we can talk a bit about that uh, and and historically what some of the challenges have been. I guess one of the things that I've seen with enterprise architecture is the mistake is an organization is too small or a project is too small and they try to bring EA to it. There are some things that are just like enterprise architecture where you sit down and spend a significant investment in time and resources to produce an enterprise architecture uh, might well be relevant to certain projects, say the core business application. If you're a bank and if you're going to overhaul your SAP banking application or your Oracle banking, right, then EA might well be relevant. If you're going to change from this model of server to that model of server, EA may not be relevant. So I think the first thing to do is to understand when is EA relevant? To, well, I would to... push back on that because we are about as small a company as you can get. We've never been larger than 20 people. And we have an enterprise architecture. It's one slide and it has pictures showing our applications and where they live and how they communicate with each other there and how they are secured. It fits on one slide. It's easily comprehensible to anyone with a technical background. And it's important to have because you can look at this and say, oh, gee, we have three different cloud services. Hey, does it make sense to try to shrink that down to two? Will that save money? You can look at the slide and make those decisions. So I think the important thing is you don't need a big, heavy, 
200 page slide deck for a company with 20 people, mm-hmm. but you might need a single slide that says, all right, here's where our stuff is. Here's how yeah. it's connected. Mm-hmm. Here's how it's managed. And here's where we want to go. You know, here's our plan forward because our goal is to be more productive and spend fewer dollars to get that same level of productivity. So you can start with a good visual image of where you are so that you can make some decisions. Let's pause the conversation for a message from the Internet Society. You can now get Internet access from space thanks to low-Earth orbit or LEO satellites in companies such as Starlink and OneWeb. And in 2023, more companies are planning to launch hundreds, even thousands more satellites to support broadband services, including Amazon's Project Kuiper and Canada's Telesat. These LEO systems have great promise to help address the digital divide and connect the unconnected. Kids can learn online, people can connect with others, play games, stream movies. Schools and libraries can connect and bring the Internet to many people. LEO systems can also support emergency responders and help get critical internet access during natural disasters. So there are big opportunities on the horizon, but also questions. The Internet Society, a global nonprofit advocating for an open and trusted internet, dives into these questions in a new paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access. You can download this paper for free and share it with others by going to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. One more time, you can get the paper Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access at internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. And now, back to the podcast. So first of all, there's a planning phase, is Mm -hmm. what I heard there. There's a thing like saying, we do some research, we get some consensus from stakeholders, so business people, technologists, that this is an agreed vision, and you document that as slideware, so bullet points. I would say visual. Um, I, I am I'm a big fan of actually drawing it out and putting boxes or uh, drums, you know, for your data, the applications or your data and yeah. lines for your network, so that you can actually see this is connected here. Here's the API. Here's how data is passed. Here's where data is stored, so you can visually see it. I'm yeah. a lot more interested in that than bullet points because so you can you can envision workflows. what's going on. Is what's that, that workflows, data uh, flows. The, you can put that on later, but you actually, mm. in a sense, the workflows in my head are the cars on the highway. The first yeah. thing you have to see is the map. Okay, this city is connected to that city with a highway. This city is not connected to this city with a highway. And then you can start putting the cars on it and see what the problem is. You know, there's massive congestion because you're going on local roads or mm. whatever. In some senses, enterprise architecture is not a technology design. In fact, in just about every sense, it's very much a data stored here, data moves here, a backup function exists, but you don't care if it's tape or whatever, you just create some criteria around it. What about stakeholders? Do you include those in an EA, enterprise architecture? The EA is actually, it is a design. So whether it's, and and it should be technical, you know, you should say very clearly, here we have Amazon, here Mm. we have, here is whatever your storage unit is for the next because the next iteration you you can say okay we've selected cloud and we haven't yet selected whether it's going to be amazon or or azure but here is the cloud that we're putting our stuff in the architecture i think we're confusing strategy and architecture at the moment because Mm. strategy absolutely requires stakeholders as we've said in previous um, episodes the architecture is kind of the output of that discussion where you say okay here's our business drivers Here's our technology principles. Now, here's what we've got today, and here's what we want it to look like based on these conversations we've had. And that's where you can do to the extent that it makes sense, as we've talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. the gap analysis and say, well, gee, if we've said everything is going to be on the cloud and yet everything is currently residing on-prem, we can see what the problem is. And clearly our roadmap should have a path for moving workloads from on-prem to the cloud or vice versa. 
I don't yeah. care. So it's really a picture is the way to zero zero in on enterprise architecture is a, a picture either of the way you are today yeah. or the way you want to be or both. It's I, I, I just it's very interesting to me that it's very hard to define enterprise architecture. And indeed, some of my negative experiences of it have been exactly that. It's very oh, difficult to have consensus amongst a team about what EA means in terms of the operating culture of, a t of an organization. Well, I think that's correct. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that EA goes in and out of fashion. You know, in the 1990s, things were getting a little wild and crazy. People started saying, oh, my God, we need an enterprise architecture team. It kind of peaked at about 2008, where everybody was an enterprise architect. That was the job to go after. And then it sort of crashed. So by about 10 years ago, 2012, Nobody had enterprise architecture, and now we're seeing it become more important again. I want to highlight why that happens, because in my view, what happens is there's enterprise architecture. People suddenly realize that it's not very effective. It's mm -hmm. not doing anything, and you've got a lot of expensive people walking around. And then they lay off those expensive people or repurpose them to something else. Enterprise architecture grows, goes away. Mm -hmm. Then in an era of rapid technology change, all of a sudden they look around and say, holy cow, we're you know, we've got shadow IT doing this over here. We've got this group doing that over here. There's no yeah. coordinated plan pulling all of this together and focusing it. We need enterprise architects. Well, you need a review board or some sort of oversight to make sure that everybody's pulling in the same direction. You don't suddenly find, you know, HR is implementing a HR system, but you then suddenly find that the there's a business unit that's implemented its own human resources function. Exactly. Yeah. And the review board needs a diagram to work from that says, mm. what is that direction that we're supposed to be pulling in? And I keep using cloud because it's the obvious example. But if HR decided to go to cloud and your overall strategy is not to go to cloud, then oopsie, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, but let's talk a little bit about reasons that EA has failed in your experience and that we see it failing. I mean, you you said you've had a bunch of bad experiences with EA. Tell yeah, us about it. I think the biggest problem I've had with EA is that um, there's two ways to approach enterprise architecture. One is that there's a team of um, distant experts in a tower producing TOGAF documents. Are you familiar with TOGAF? I am not. And in fact, you brought this up. So why don't you share that with the, the audience? <laughs> what ITIL is to operations, IT operations, TOGAF is the same sort of idea. And it's a way for you to map out the business process and the enterprise architecture and it's an open standard you but you have to pay to access it just like you do itil um i can't actually remember what togaf stands for because oh yeah it's the open group something architecture something, foundation yes. or something like or that. something like that uh, it's guidelines and rules on how to make architecture diagrams and how to make them uh, standardized in such a way that you see the same thing so no matter who creates the enterprise architecture the process for creating the documentation and the diagrams that you create is standardized so that you've got some case of transferability because so much of enterprise IT is is from the angle of the consultant or the expert or the person executing it and they take very personal um, you know their experiences form their views and then they create documentation which is very you know, uh, uh, anachronistic or uh, from a certain perspective. Like if you've got someone who is never very good at writing English or is not a very good writer, they'll often write very poor design documentation, for example. Whereas uh, TOGAF is a standards body that defines roughly like ITIL. This is how you write. This is your process. This is what you're expected to produce. 
so and by the way if anyone wants to check it out uh it's www.opengroup.org slash togaf so you can go have a look at it it's been around for decades but it's not very well known (laughs) and it's it's... not very effective Uh, you know in in my head one of the reasons i tend to eschew uh these kinds of formal structures for creating architectures is you know we've been around for 30 years we've spent a lot of time looking at what works and what doesn't i Mm. tend to go for the you know the old ietf used to talk about rough consensus and running code Mm -hmm. you want to really focus on what resonates with the organization you're working with what's already present in their minds and hearts not Mm. to sound too schmoopy what we do when we go in and work with a client is really try to understand their vision of what they're doing yeah Correct it if there are areas where it's unrealistic or the vision is not going to deliver on the business drivers Mm. that they think, or in some cases, remind them that they have different business drivers. But generally, our job is to almost uh, to coax out of the IT folks that vision and put it down on paper in a way that's going to resonate with their senior executives, which is not necessarily the same way that, you know, any standards body has come up with. Mm. Um, So that's that's kind of what we do. Uh, But. I'll answer my own question, I think, and you touched on this, Greg. One of the big things that happens when companies decide to set up an enterprise architecture group is they kind of walk around with a magic wand and they go, Greg, you're an enterprise architect. You no longer have a day-to-day job. Please sit in this office and generate slideware. Uh, And so you sit in this office and generate 130 slides of beautiful, beautiful slideware that has nothing to do with what's happening. You spend hours and hours in meetings and consulting with people. Exactly. And you're really important because you're an enterprise architect and you're the Mm. top of the food chain. But there's nothing actionable and it's divorced from the operational reality of the world. And you have a great example of that. You know, you said something like uh, something about how EA would define APIs. You want to talk about that? Well, I'm just trying to reach for various ideas. So an EA wouldn't define your server architecture or your network vendor or it would tend to define things like APIs. If if I'm going to have a business function over here, this is the sort of data that it would exchange with this service over here. So you know, what data should the HR system exchange with the accounting system, for example? You would want to then broadly define the APIs in fairly clear and detailed statements because the data that passes between the HR system and the accounting system should be rigidly controlled. You don't want leaky. You want to be able to hand that specification off to a security consultant as much as you do to a a third-party consulting team that's going to implement something. But what I also find is that APIs are not rigidly defined. Like in the mainframe era, things didn't change rapidly or even through the 80s and into the 90s, technology evolved quite slowly. Whereas today we see people deploying live into production and APIs can iterate on an hourly basis. The concept of culture around enterprise architecture is how do you write an enterprise architecture which defines something in a static mode, but at the same time leaves the uh, operational, the day-to-day aspects, especially in an era of DevOps and DevSecOps and, and NetSec DevOps or whatever it is, you know, whatever buzzword you want to use around that, allows them to iterate at rapid speed. And that's the tension that I find with enterprise architecture. I agree with you. And I think the the thing you're saying is really that the enterprise architecture needs to be a living, breathing document, but there has to be some sanity here. You know, mm. every time you update the API, you can't be running back to a PowerPoint chart and going, oh, whoops, we made a change. Mm. But you need to capture it at a high enough level that those changes are assumed and implicit, revisit it often enough so that you, so that it tracks to reality closely mm. enough. 
Um, but at the same time, you don't want to be treating it as this, you know, as this rigid, rigid shape that you have to follow. I do want to circle back to something you said, though, because uh -huh. an enterprise architecture may or may not say whether you're using AT&T or BT, but it should include things like this is MPLS or this is this is broadband Internet or this is wireless. Mm. That's incredibly important because the characteristics of your network are going to affect how you the data flow across them. So I think yeah. you're touching on something that's very important, which is enterprise architecture has really evolved in the context of applications, mm. but it is equally important for infrastructure. And I think that's one of the weak spots in a lot of IT organizations, because I used to joke that you mm. can always walk into a room in an IT department and tell immediately whether it's the app developers or the infrastructure folks, because the app developers have these complicated compl on the whiteboard they have these complicated networks of little boxes and everything has labels and there's little drums with the data. And then there's a single line that's the network. In an infrastructure team, you've got like uh, lots of little clouds and puffs and different shapes of, of lines and wi wires and boxes that are the network. And the application is just a giant rectangle. And the issue, the issue is that there's complexity of both, both at the application and the infrastructure level and the um, enterprise architecture needs to address both. And it, yeah doesn't you know you may have a much more complex application architecture than you do infrastructure or vice versa but either way you need both the challenge is making ea part of your culture so for me the challenge always was that enterprise architecture and and you've alluded to it in the prep notes is that culturally it comes and goes sometimes an organization thinks that enterprise architecture is important <laughs> enterprise architecture engages you know everybody turns to them six months in enterprise architecture is getting in the way of something or too much time and then it get fades out and then the business has a convulsion around process and structural organization and comes back again, if that makes sense. It's super and difficult to sustain EA, in my opinion. I think the big reason is that there is not a tight linkage between having an effective EA and operational metrics. Mm. And this is something we've done work with many clients to convince upper management that they need an enterprise architecture organization. And I will tell you that in our experience, there are a handful of metrics. Not all of them will apply in your organization, but you want to look at them. If you're having mm. trouble putting together an enterprise architecture group, what you want to look at is something like time to successful deployment for infrastructure applications. Get a consistent metric for that that everybody buys into across the organization, which really comes down to what do you consider success and what do you consider deployment? Mm. Because it can be anywhere from the very first instantiation rolled out to 100% of the organization is deployed. It doesn't really matter. Just pick a metric and then look at it. That will correlate with a successful enterprise architecture. Yeah. Uh, if you're cybersecurity, uh, we have the mean total time to contain, which is, or sorry, median total time to contain, which is the time to detect, understand, and contain threats. Hmm. You can also look at things like ability to perform functions on a timely fashion. So agility various measures of agility, and finally, cost to deploy, ROI, TCO, all fall out of having a successful enterprise architecture. And the reason for that is if you've already thought ahead and said, listen, we want to connect module A with module B in the most efficient way possible, you make your design decisions so that options for module A must include the ability to connect effectively with module B. Yeah. And again, module can be an application, it can be storage, it doesn't matter. But if you've already thought through that, you've reduced the time and energy and cost to connect the two. And so you move ahead farther, faster, and at lower cost. 
I guess the challenge with enterprise architecture is that it's trying to hold it's trying to hold the whole vision together at a strategy level. Whereas a lot of the time in design we have tactics going on. Now this is where ITIL and TOGAF or ITIL and Enterprise Architecture get because ITIL attempts to identify a gap and then addresses the gap. And once they've defined the gap, they validate it against the enterprise architecture, but the execution wanders off in its own track because the project becomes a silo. Does that make sense? It, it does. And you're, you know, of course, to, to use a, a hoary old cliche, it's the forest and the trees, right? Engineers, IT and engineers are constantly forced into exam, you know, a minute examination of the bark on individual trees. Hmm. And enterprise architecture is looking at, you know, taking that drone level view of the entire forest and where the hills are and where the creeks are and things like that. And obviously you need both and Hmm. constantly reinforcing the fact that, okay, this particular tree is happening in this particular way for these particular reasons, but it's also part of a forest is really key. Yeah. And actually, here's a tactic that we found is highly, highly, highly successful mm. in bridging that gap generally, which is you end up making a decision that is strategically wrong, but tactically right. We need to do this right for the here and now, but we understand that the strategic, the strategy is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It turns out that simply acknowledging those two things, the strategy is that we don't do this, We're doing this under intense pressure in the here and now with the recognition that the strategy is elsewhere. But our goal is to remediate that decision as quickly as possible and get it aligned with the strategy and not and put ourselves in a position where we don't have to make such tactical mistakes again. It turns out that works because you get the immediate problem solved. So the people who are screaming, we need this thing, we need this thing, we need this thing, it gets done. But at the same time, the engineers say, okay, we're not going to go into the world of technical debt by continuing down this path of doing the wrong thing because we set precedence once yeah. doing the wrong thing. I guess really what we're uh, what we're goaling here with enterprise architecture is trying to build some coherence in the vision for how you keep your IT infrastructure and IT portfolio aligned towards a common goal. And I think it gets more important in bigger organizations. So if you go to a team of 20 people, Really, you just need one or two people who are the review board and you chat to them over lunch about what you're doing and they go, that's fair enough, off you go. But when you get to a team with 200, 500 people or a startup which is moving at really rapid pace and everything's changing and no one's got, you know, everybody's pulling in different directions, you may end up in a situation where the vision gets lost. And that, to me, is what EA does. And I think it varies a lot depending on the business that that you're in. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense, and I think you gave the best definition of EA that I've heard, which unfortunately I didn't write down, but we have recorded, so yay. The word coherence is a thing of beauty. Uh, it, that, I think, if you think about it, a laser is coherent light, and the difference between a laser and ordinary incoherent light is enormous. You can burn things with a laser. You can etch things with a laser. We all know the degree to which an enterprise architecture can bring that coherence to your IT initiatives is huge, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love that word because it, it really conveys the value, the value of an enterprise architecture, which is really a force multiplier for IT. And I also like what you wrapped up with, which is the level of structure can really depend on both the size of the company 
and how quickly you're moving. Yeah. You know, you brought up this notion of, okay, maybe you only have 100 people, but you're a startup that's moving at the speed of light and you have to completely revise your architecture every every month. Mm. I mean, there are companies like that and they have to do that. And that's... Yeah, and, and you know, the, the story of the startup that suddenly has – all, everything's based in the cloud and you know using containers but this guy this put this developer over here is writing in rust this one's over here writing in python and over here's yep. another one writing in javascript and then suddenly there's a sql database and somebody got a graph database and suddenly they're using and they've got this sprawl that they're losing control of what's happening that's where enterprise architecture tends to come back into fashion and say like well we can't we've got to stop this sprawl because they go out to try and hire somebody and they have to hire somebody who's got rust skills with a graph database skills to be able to maintain that and and that's what you're trying to prevent really i want to circle back to the business value of enterprise architecture and just really highlight why the business actually needs it and i think Mm. there's three key business values whatever your metrics are The first one is speed, and speed comes from not having to, being able to assess vendors and technologies very quickly because you have a filter. It says, do they fit the architecture or not? And if there's a technology that's very, very interesting but doesn't fit the architecture, do we change the architecture? Mm -hmm. Um, I think a very, very key point is that you have better understood integration requirements and capabilities. Mm. And then the last area for speed is that you're actually able to have reusable utility software business infrastructure components that can get you reused again and again, more so than if you don't have an EA. Yeah. I think the second, oh, go ahead. Let me give you an example of enterprise architecture in action. And that is the fact that most of us use MySQL these days, right? Or a SQL database. And we have a consistent language for using databases. Now, let's pretend that some of the other databases, the diversity of databases now for specific point solutions aren't really in scope here. There was a time, a decade or two ago, where there was many different forms of database and they didn't use a common query language. And every time you had to. And companies decided that they needed to share the data in the database. And enterprise architects would say, we want to, any database must use a structured query language and a standard emerged and that, and and the iteration went round and round and round and eventually you get to the point where there's only one product in the market because most companies have standardized on one way that works well enough in most circumstances. So that to me is an example of enterprise architecture in action. Does that make sense? It does. The other couple of benefits that I think people are seeing are accuracy and future-proofing. One of the things with accuracy is that sometimes organizations will engineer themselves into a cul-de-sac and they can't get out of the cul-de-sac and it's not not fixable without an entire forklift upgrade. Mm. If you're thinking about that ahead of time and you're making decisions ahead of time, you you are less likely to end up in that in, in that environment. And that's actually a very big deal. Nobody wants to admit that they've engineered themselves into a uh, and a cul-de-sac, mm. but it happens. Mm. Yeah. And the last one, and I think this is what you were getting at with, you know, talking about MySQL, that you're really future-proofing. Yes. An effective enterprise architecture is scalable, it's extensible, and it supports stuff that you haven't haven't realized you needed mm-hmm. uh, because the requirements didn't exist yet. Mm. But if you've been thinking about it carefully, you know that capability certain capabilities are never going to go out of style. Yeah. And I think yeah. one of the great things about the internet is that the people that sat down and, and developed TCP and IP, and I know them personally, they didn't sit there and say, we want to be enabling YouTube and Zoom. Mm. They just said, we don't want to place limits on what we're able to do. So let's build something that actually works for the scenario that we're thinking about, which was really scientific and defense computing. And it was extensible to do things like real-time audio and video, yeah. which really wasn't what it was designed for. 
I think you, you mentioned TCP/IP, and I think TCP/IP is another example of ex- uh, enterprise architecture in action, because prior to the convergence around TCP/IP, we had Apple Talk and Banyan Vines and IPX SPX and a range of other protocols of the era. And SNA, no, don't forget IBM's exactly. SNA. And it really was not a viable thing for enterprises to support all of these protocols and to try and run them all together on a consistent infrastructure. And I think TCP IP, if you wanted to have a case study and think about why did the industry converge on a single protocol, and the answer was the communication wasn't inherently valued by being diverse. And the same things happened with Microsoft Office too. The world works better if we have one horrible, badly maintained, badly written office suite and alternatives haven't been able to emerge because it's just the, the you know the architecture makes sense that way because that's the, you, you want people who have skills at using these tools and you can only get people using Microsoft Office because everybody gets Microsoft Office and blah 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 right I'm going to defer all comments on Microsoft Office but I do agree that the internet is a great case study for enterprise architecture and I want to highlight one of the key characteristics of how the inter- enterprise the internet was developed hmm. and I think it's really important because the internet engineering task force never viewed itself as a standards body and that's a small thing but it's a very important thing. Yes. They basically chartered themselves with how can we make it work which gets back to my definition <laughs> yeah, of making right. something yeah. work. Uh, and I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but rough consensus and running code yeah. was their mantra. And the idea was if somebody had an idea, you could debate it up to a point and then it was like, go away and write the code and show me that it works. Yeah. And, and it also other, means near enough is good enough. Near enough is good enough. It and, was fail fast. All of that stuff that we talked about decades later. The other thing, and I think this is important politically, is that contributors were valued for themselves yeah. not for the companies they worked for. Now, towards the end, and I know the IETF is still going on, hmm. but after about the late 90s, uh, it started to get controlled by tech companies. And there was this notion that Cisco should own the chairman of the chair, should be the chair of the IETF because Cisco. The, the reality the... was one of the most successful chairs of the IETF was Fred Baker, who happened to work for Cisco. Yeah. But what made him successful was his talent in bringing together a lot of diverse engineering viewpoints and making forward progress without shutting yes. anyone down. Well, and, and it's interesting that um, yeah. the ITF might be also a useful case study in sustaining an architecture. Now, this means you have to go out and study the ITF and how it works and how it listens to every voice. And it lets, and every now and then uh, the ITF will uh, let things float to the top of the toilet bowl, if you like, that probably shouldn't be there. Now, there's an image that I really wish you hadn't given me, Greg, but yes. yes. right. Even um, bad ideas get uh, their know, day in the sun. And even if they're bad ideas, true. if enough people get on board with them, then maybe they're a viable, you know, what you might see as a bad idea. <coughs> IPv6. <laughs> IPv6. But yes, I think I think you're actually quite right. And I think that, the you know, you're right about the case study. And in, in our copious spare time... Uh, we can go off and write a book about the, you know, IETF as a as a case study for how to how to create like how something. to create an enterprise architecture modeled on that. Exa- exactly, know. but I think the key thing here is the emphasis on inclusivity. Mm-hmm. That nobody was excluded. There are no rules about who gets to go to the IETF. Okay. There never were. You just show up and you you do your yeah. thing. Inclusivity number one, and it has to work number two. And by focusing on those two things, I think they were successful. I, I, my tip for enterprise architects is to accept that near enough is good enough. One of the problems I've had with enterprise and, architects is they go like, no, it has to be perfect. And I go like, 
you don't understand down here in the in the trenches you know i'm lobbing hand grenades and pulling the trigger on things and near enough is good enough let's just move on right and, and if it doesn't exactly match that's fine if you got 80 percent of the way there let's that's you've done well right yeah. yep don't let the enemy be the don't let the perfect be the enemy that's of the good exactly right near enough is good enough well, I, and on that note greg i think we can yeah, wrap well up. hopefully we've given you some questions to ask yourself maybe even given you some crazy ideas on how to approach enterprise architecture i don't know but i i uh, people often write to us and they can do so by heading over to packetpushes.net slash fu and um, leave a message and send it to us so that we know what you're thinking. If you've got topics you want us to cover, if you've got feedback or stuff you want to tell us, that's the place to go. Uh, and we welcome it. And if you want to talk to us directly, same thing. If you want to ask us direct questions, then then you can do that. Um, and don't hesitate to go on over to Packet Pushes where you can find a lot more other podcasts. And key thing, please tell other people. Really important. We'd like to grow. We've got some very slow, steady growth going now. We've got about 1,500 people an episode tuning in. Um, and it would be really helpful if we could get up to a, quite a bit larger so we can start to sustain this as a project going forward. 